right? 1 Peter 3, uh, 1 to 7, God's Word says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I want to encourage you as we uh, look to the instruction of God's Word as it pertains to marriage, I want to recommend a resource to you. Uh, this book is called Sacred Marriage. It's written by Gary Thomas. Uh, we actually did his uh, parent study a few months ago over the summer, uh, Sacred Parenting. This is, uh, from what I found, one of the best books on marriage, on Christian marriage. So I want to encourage you, uh, even if you aren't struggling in marriage, if everything's fine, read this book. It is really, really good. Uh, just talking about how the gospel affects our marriages and our lives. So I want to recommend this resource to you. You guys can come up here and take a look. This is actually an extra copy I have. So if you want this, uh, feel free uh, to take that. So as we look to this passage, we are presented uh, with a little bit of difficulty this morning, especially in light of our culture. And when we start using terms like be subject to or submit, uh, our culture might push back against those uh, types of terms. And so I want to address those first. This uh, sermon, I'm just warning you, it's going to take a little bit to unpack because we got to look at some of what the Bible teaches overall, just the the whole biblical theology of marriage. And then we're going to dig into how this text applies to wives and husbands. And so as we approach this text, we have to first address cultural concerns and past and present abuses of this particular text and other texts by Paul uh, within the church. First, again, the idea of submission uh, within the ordering of marriage is, I would say, in our present cultural context, uh, absolutely taboo. That someone would submit to the other person is largely rejected by our culture. The idea of submission is just not in our vocabulary because we're so individualistic. As I was uh, reading through this passage, uh, the song by Toby Keith, you guys remember that song by Toby Keith that says, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one, oh me, oh my. You guys remember that song? Okay, that's, that's the center of what our culture is all about. It's all about me. I want to talk about me. I want to talk about myself. I want to focus on myself. And yet, God's word starts putting a framework around how we're supposed to live our lives. Not to make light of of the rebellion of humanity towards God's intended design, but we must also note that the church has unfortunately had a role in misinterpreting some of these uh, texts. With encouraging, in a sense, domineering headship by husbands, not only in modern times, but in, in centuries past. And I want to be clear, 
domination of another person is not okay. It is sinful. It's not God's intended design for human relationships. And past abuses of such a text as this one, it doesn't lessen its instruction, though. We still heed the instruction of God's Word, and we're going to seek to correct kind of the cultural influence and the past cultural influences on a text uh, like this. And so I want to begin this sermon first by pointing to a statement that we have at the bottom of your sermon notes there. And I want to be very clear about this. Our leadership team, our elders, we love you as a church. We love the women of this church. And we want to encourage you, if you are uh, in an abusive relationship, emotionally or physically, that you would seek help. That you would seek the help of authorities. And that after that, that you would seek the help of the elders or the staff leadership team so that we could walk alongside you within that. Unfortunately, uh, there are many cases uh, within the church, you probably have read them here or there, where leadership has covered up the abuses of men, and that's just not acceptable. And I want to be very clear about that. Ladies, we support you, and if you are in an abusive relationship, we want to walk alongside you within uh, addressing that issue. And we would encourage you to seek uh, the help of authorities, and then seek help with the local church so that we could walk alongside you, counsel you, and encourage you uh, within that. So, uh, with that, God's design for marriage is never intended to be abusive, but rather, when applied correctly, is a beautiful picture of this, of the good news of Jesus Christ, of the gospel. That's what marriage pictures Husband and wife, living harmoniously, serving and loving one another, equal and complementing each other's roles within the household. When God's word is applied faithfully, I can't help but but conclude that marriage will be this. It will be a joy, a joyous partnership, and a testament to the impact of the gospel in your everyday life. And so as we approach the text, we must begin with with this, a biblical overview of marriage to understand then Peter's instructions here to wives and husbands. So uh, one of our overarching themes is this, is marriage restoring God's design. Marriage restoring God's design. Genesis 1.27. So we're going to go back to the Old Testament a little bit, and then we'll leap forward to Peter's instruction says this in Genesis 1:27 So God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them Today we enter the discussion of our next sphere of of authority. We've talked about spheres of authority over the past few weeks. A few weeks ago we talked about the church. Last week we talked about the government. Now we're talking about the family, the circle of the family. The innermost, I believe the innermost circle of God's ordered design. God began in this creation account with the family as the center of his creation. He created male and female as the pinnacle of the creative account. And upon creating uh, humanity, he declared that his creation was what? Very good. He looked at all he created and he said it is very good. The original roles were set forth in in that creation account, summarized in a few words. This was the picture of marriage, that they were to help and provide companionship to one another. That's what the husband and wife were to do. But sin 
entered into the creation. And sin cursed the creation. And we understand the result of sin is summarized in the curse after the fall of Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3.16, the latter half of that verse, it says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. And then it says, But he shall rule over you. Those are two negative aspects of the curse on creation because of sin. Do you, within that statement, see both parties, okay, wife and husband, pushing against God's intended design? If God's intended design was that the husband and wife would help one another and provide companionship to one another, being contrary to leadership and ruling in a dominating way have no place in a Christian marriage. The wife will have, it says here in the passage, the wife will have a desire to be contrary to her husband, pushing against his leadership. And many times we stop right there in the passage. That's the only thing that we focus on. But it continues on. It says the husband will rule his wife. That's not a positive way of saying it. It's not a good thing. The idea of ruling in this context is negative. It is here that we get the sense that the man will desire to dominate other people, be a, be a dominating force within the household. The God-intended help and companionship of, of the marital relationship has been damaged, but there's always good news. See, we, we start with the bad news, but there's good news. Because God has the answer, and he's given us answers on restoring his, his design for marriage where? In the Bible. He's given us the answers in Scripture. His word corrects our path. Look at the way Paul instructs the Ephesians in in chapter 5, verse 31 to 33. He says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he says this, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Men, did you hear that? And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Do you see how God's word now corrects the curse? Sets things straight. God's design is restored through the picture of the gospel. That's what Paul recalls in this passage. He says, this, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Our marriages should model the marriage of Christ to his bride, which is the church. The gospel then, in a sense, it changes everything, doesn't it? It restores God's design. Marriage pictures the union of Christ and his bride the church, and if we model our marriages after the work of Christ, how can we be contrary to each other? That's what we're faced with. How can we be pushing against each other? How can we try to rule each other in a domineering fashion if the gospel is the center of our marriage? If Christ and his church is the center of our marriage? If we're reminded daily of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross... How can we be contrary and dominating to each other? God corrects the sin-marred picture of marriage that we have witnessed all throughout biblical history and in our own history. 
Peter in this passage focuses on wives first. Okay, ladies, you probably noticed, man, there's a whole lot of verses here that are about me, and there's only one about the husband. So, so Peter focuses on wives first. Six of the seven verses deal with the wife. And I want to I invite you into a cultural picture here. This is actually incredible. You see, because we, we view this passage in our time where there's equality between men and women, but when this was written some 2,000 years ago, women in that culture were, were viewed as second-class citizens, slaves in a sense. They had no rights. They were completely and utterly dependent on their husbands. And yet, the Bible, God's Word, Peter in Scripture dedicates the vast majority of verses in this passage to who? Women. The Bible is elevating women above the place where the world once placed them, which was down. And Peter is showing, just like men are created in the image of God, all of humanity is created in the image of God. Men and women in his image and likeness. And so when the culture says that the Bible is misogynistic and tries to keep women down, correct them. Because when the world was putting women down, the Bible elevated them. Thank goodness. And another contextual note from the history of where this letter was written, why would there be so many verses dedicated to women? Because in that time, the vast majority of Christian converts were women. They made up a a huge portion of the church, the people that Peter is addressing. And the reality is that they, they had a tough go of it because oftentimes men would not convert to Christianity because it was too taxing on them socially and economically. But women received the good news about Jesus Christ and were desiring to see their husbands reconciled to Christ. They wanted to see their husbands saved. And so the context behind this is to wives, by and large, who are married to unbelieving husbands. Okay, and so it brings us to this now as we look to wives. Okay, so wives, we're going to, ladies, we're going to talk about you first because that's where the text is at. And then at the end, I'm going to beat up the guys a little bit. Okay, is that a good deal? All right. So wives, uh, our first point aimed here at the wives. Wives, actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. If we had to summarize the six verses of instruction for wives, I believe this is it, that that actions speak louder than words. Where do we get this from? Peter says this uh, in part of the first verse. He says, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Again, context is key. This, This is a passage geared towards women who were married to unbelieving men which in this time was, was a difficult predicament because the husband directed the family in such a way that the family needed to fall in line with what his religious convictions were. 
And so when a, when a wife became a follower of Jesus, they were really pushing back against the societal and cultural norms because they were saying, I'll, I'll be under your leadership, but not in this area where I'm going to worship false gods because I believe there is one true God. If a, if a woman then who had become a, a Christian desired for her husband to heed the lordship of Christ, that is to be saved by Jesus, Peter instructs to do it in this way. He says, win them without a word by your conduct. Remember what Peter had just said, if you'll recall back in in chapter 2 in our text last week, he said this, just in general to Christians, he said, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil of you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I think Peter's putting this into action here uh, with the ladies in his congregation. He's saying, remember what I said, that you would live such lies of good conduct that when it's pushed back against you, that they, they would see your good deeds and what? They would glorify God. May your husband, your unbelieving husband, be one to the Lord because of the way you live in light of the gospel. And so we're going to draw two points of application from this section. Two points. Point number one, affirm and encourage your husband's leadership. Affirm and encourage your husband's leadership. The text will say, be subject. Or another way to say it is, Paul says it, submit in other words, uh, let's, I want to pull these two terms in. How we can apply this in, in our context. Affirm and encourage the headship of your husband. Build him up in that. Encourage him to lead. Affirm him in that role. Whether he's a believer or not. Because remember, this is aimed at wives of unbelieving husbands. We're going to look at the beginning part of, of chapter 3 and then we'll skip to verses 5 to 6. So verse 1 and 2 and then 5 and 6 says, Likewise, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. I want to pause there. Okay, wives are subject to their own husbands. Guys, you don't get to tell someone else's wife what to do. They're not subject to you. They're under the leadership of their own husband. It says, so that even if some do not obey the word, so they're, they're not in Christ, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And then he gives us an example. He says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening... And so for those in the room who have unbelieving husbands, I want you to hear what God's instruction is saying. I believe God's word is powerful enough. If we obey God's word, he's going to do things. And Peter instructs here, he says, you, you may not win your husband to the Lord through the words, but you may be able to win him through your conduct. If you would inf- affirm and encourage his leadership, as God intended. He says, keep your conduct respectful and pure. Follow the lead. He he points out an example in Sarah. I want you to think about now Sarah's life. Sarah was married to who? Abraham, right? Think about her life with Abraham. 
Now, there was some crazy stuff that happened in that marriage. But I want you to think to the the very beginning of when we're introduced to Abraham, I believe in Genesis chapter 12. God's calling of Abraham. Abraham was called by God from his homeland to go to a promised land. And if you read through that passage, God doesn't really give clear instructions other than start walking. Now I want you to think about this, ladies. What if your husband came to you and said this, God talked to me, and he promised me some land, and he said just walk. Let's go. (laughs) What did Sarah do? She's with him, isn't she? And that's what's inferred in the text. He didn't just walk by himself. He had his wife with him because they were of old age. They were already together. And we have to believe that she's affirming and encouraging Abraham's leadership and like, okay, this is what God's called you to do. I'm with you. I'm walking with you and I'm not going to fear. I'm going to encourage you. She went with him. She affirmed him. She encouraged him. Now, I I do want to pause because there's some shady stuff that happened in Abraham and Sarah's marriage also. Abraham lied. Said she was his sister because he was scared when he went into the land of Egypt because she was a beautiful woman. And so we also have some instruction that we can draw out from that relationship because we look at the whole counsel of God, not just one passage. And the whole counsel of God teaches us this, wives. If your husband is asking you to do something sinful, you don't follow his lead in that. You graciously push back against that and say, no, thank you. I'm not doing that thing that you're asking me to do. If it's against God's word, if it's against his commands and his instructions, we follow, all of us follow God's way first. God is first. Next, wives, point number two. Elevate inward beauty over external beauty. Elevate inward beauty over external beauty. And so the question that comes out of this section, what if we focused more on our inward growth over an outward impression of the way we look? What if we focused more on our inward growth instead of what's outside? Verses three to four. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, I have a question for you. When you see a statement like this, which in God's sight is very precious, wouldn't you want to do what God says is very precious to him? Again, when we listen to God's word, I believe blessings will abound in that. Wouldn't you love God to look on you and say, that is precious in my sight. I think that should be the desire of every follower of Jesus. 
And so let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. That's what Peter says. With the imperishable beauty of a, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight, he says, is very precious. Now, again, we need to rewind about 2,000 years, go back to when this letter is written. Why is Peter talking in this manner about braiding your hair and gold jewelry? Some of you are kind of getting uncomfortable in here. I'm not saying you can't look nice, okay? Everybody appreciates nice-looking things. But in the context, in the cultural context, wealthy women were adorning themselves in a way so that they would get attention from wealthy men, and the poor women were trying to do the same thing. And Peter's saying here, hey, the most important thing is not necessarily that, it's what you are on the inside. The old saying, it's, it's what's inside that counts, right? It rings true. And again, this is not saying that outward beauty is bad. Thank goodness for beautiful things. Sarah, if you remember, was beautiful. It's why Abraham lied and said, hey, she's my sister because he knew the guys were going to want her. Why? Because she was attractive. Jacob, he was attracted to another lady, Rachel. She was, why was he attracted to her? Because she was beautiful. So this is not saying that you can't be beautiful or that you should not try to look beautiful, but rather is elevating inward beauty more so than external looks. Man, we need to hear this right now. If you peruse social media for more than two or three minutes, you're going to see a whole lot of pictures that are kind of posed like this. Okay, God values the inward more than the external. Okay, beauty is not sinful. But not seeking to grow yourself, your inward beauty is, by not seeking to grow into what God wants you to be. The statement leads us to this question, where is the investment of your time? Are you investing in that inner person, that hidden person that Peter talks about? Do you work just as much on your internal growth as your exterior beauty? It says here in the text, a, a, a gentle and quiet spirit. Let's talk about that a little bit. This does not mean to literally be quiet. Okay? I enjoy that my wife talks and speaks and gives her input. But rather, what Peter is saying is, is a spirit of peace within the home, that you, you convey a spirit of peace within your house. Again, looking back at the curse, you will desire to be contrary to your husband. Peter is correcting this desire. Remember, God's design is what we're aiming for. And so he says, put on the beauty of a gentle and peaceful spirit. Wives, do you create a, a gentle and peaceful home atmosphere for your family? Affirm and encourage the leadership of your husband. One just quick practical way that we can do this is that we would, both people, we cast aside the phrase, I told you so. Is that affirming or encouraging to your husband when he says, I told you so, I told you it was going to happen? That we would pull that out of our vocabulary. The most beautiful thing that you can do is to follow the design of God for marriage. Seek to grow your inner beauty. And I believe God will honor your willingness to submit to his words. All right, now husbands, you guys are up now. Hey, the last verse. Husbands, grace speaks louder than domination. Grace speaks louder 
than domination. Remember the curse passage from the beginning. It said, He will rule you. Then think about this statement. Grace speaks louder than domination. Paul again, looking to Ephesians 5, captures this in light of the gospel. Men, listen to this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What a calling that we have on our lives, men. That's our calling. Do you want to know what a godly husband looks like? This is what Paul is saying in Ephesians. Do you want to know what a godly husband looks like? Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. Look to his life. Look at all he has done for his bride, the church. Jesus loved her sacrificially and even unto death. Sanctifying her. That is making her better, making her more beautiful. Men, are you carrying out this role in your leadership at home? Even though six of the seven verses are geared towards the wife, in my opinion, the heaviest hitting verse is aimed at the husband, the role of the husband. And so we draw now two points of application for husbands from this passage. Point number one, honor and understand. Honor and understand. Man, I want to invite you in. Think of, of Jesus leading his disciples. Okay, think about the, the ministry with the disciples. Okay, there were some good times, but there was also some tough times with his disciples. They questioned. Think about the, the man who penned this letter. How many times did he question Jesus in, in his ministry? We went through uh, the Gospel of Mark about a year ago, and we saw a lot of times that Peter was the one that would step forward and say, Hey, Jesus, about that dying on a cross and resurrecting thing, I rebuke you. Don't do that. The disciples questioned. They pushed back. They didn't believe. And yet, what Jesus went to the cross for them. I think Peter gets this. Because Peter was the one that that Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. And he said, I'd never do that. And then what happens? He denies Christ, and yet Jesus pours out his grace on him, and the church is built on the rock, it says. The gospel is presented in the early part of Acts by who first? Peter. And the Spirit is powerful, and thousands are converted. Peter understands what Jesus did. Jesus did this for his disciples He honored and understood his commitment to them. That he was leading and teaching them. And he did this in this way. Not by yelling at them, not by being dominating, but by serving them. Man, that's what we've been called to. It says in Mark chapter 10, I believe, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's who Paul says we should be modeled after. Just because the Bible instructs wives to be subject to their husbands does not mean, men, that she is your doormat. 
Honor and understand your wife. Serve your wife as Jesus serves the church. He says this in in the first part of uh, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Hear this. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Husbands, the instruction is clear here. Seek to understand your wife. Seek to understand your wife. Do you understand the things that bring her joy? Do you strive to make her role in the household easier? Do you carry her burden as Christ carried our sins on the cross? Isn't this the whole point of our, of our Christian uh, relationships? That we would love one another and carry one another's burdens? And who's our closest one another, men? Your spouse. Your wife. Who's your closest neighbor? When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, who's your closest neighbor? It's the one that sleeps next to you in bed. Love her as much as you love yourself. Just as I said that actions speak louder than words for the wife, it does so for the husband. Don't just say you understand and honor, but, but show it to your spouse. Show them that you, you understand and you honor them. Peter says, honor them as the weaker vessel. Man, that's a loaded term, isn't it? What does that mean? As much as that statement has been distorted, I can find no other explanation than it just means this, that there's physical differences between men and women. That men typically are stronger than women. Now, there are exceptions to that at times. I can recall a few weeks ago, Nate, our discipleship director, was trying to move a big heavy desk out of Heidi's office. (laughs) Heidi's our student ministry director. And I'm on one side. He asked me for help. And and Nate's on the other side. And man, he's grimacing and trying to pick. he, He can't get that thing up, so... I called Heidi in to help me. (laughs) You have my permission to give Nate a hard time about that. (laughs) But for the most part, men are more physically capable than women when it comes to picking things up and strength. I love you, Nate. (laughs) The implication of that, that weaker vessel statement has nothing to do with emotional weakness or intelligence or anything like that. Women are, as we found, guys, just as intelligent, if not more so, than we are. Honor your wife as the weaker vessel. Pick up her physical burden. Help her. Seek to understand her. If we're to be like Christ, his word says... That Christ is, in in Matthew 11, it says that he's gentle and lowly. And then he follows it with this statement. It says, his yoke is easy and his burden is what? Is light. Would you have that yoke of your wife be light and easy? Would you be understanding? Would you be gentle and lowly with your spouse? Carry her burden with her. Love your wife in that manner. And lastly... Our last application point, number two, recognize your spouse as a co-heir in Christ. Recognize your spouse as a co-heir in Christ. The second half of verse seven, since they are heirs with you 
of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, I want you to hear this. She's not only your wife, but she's also your sister in Christ. She's your sister in Christ. Hear this. God's not only your father, but he's also your father-in-law. Honor your wife thinking that way. You want to honor your father-in-law, don't you? He's your father and your father-in-law. This is because in Christ, when we are reconciled in Christ, we are equal. In Christ, we have been won by his precious blood. Our sins have been forgiven. Last week we read it said, he bore our sins on a tree. By his wounds we have been healed, it says. How can we, in light of the gospel, not be, men and women, the most gracious and loving people? When we truly, if we truly get the gospel, how are we not the most gracious people, especially in our households? How can we respond to God's grace by being domineering? Look at, look at all that Jesus has forgiven you of and live in light of that in your marriage, in your house. Forgive as he has forgiven. Lead as he has led you. You see, I, w- I want you to hear the gospel this morning. Jesus did this in your sin and shame. Jesus pursued you. He didn't wait for you to come. He chased after you. He invited you. He gave you this. He gave you a new nature. He put his Holy Spirit within you. That's how much he loves you. He died for your sin. And in his resurrection, he has raised you to a new and glorious life. May we always, husbands and wives, live out our marriages in light of the beauty of the gospel. Remember that truth. Paul says this in Galatians. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There, hear this now. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Peter, looking back to Peter's instruction to husbands, he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Hear this, the way we treat one another impacts our spiritual relationship with the Father. Remember, I said he's not only your father, but he's your father-in-law. Can you imagine giving your wife all sorts of grief and treating her bad, and then trying to go to your father-in-law and gain favor when he's seen everything that you've done? That's what Peter's saying. Your prayers will be hindered if you treat my daughter that way. It impacts our relationship with our Father. Paul says here, we are one in Christ Jesus. The way we treat each other matters. And here's the truth. God sees everything you do. He's not blind to what goes on in your household. God sees everything. 
Going back to, again, to Peter's statement on prayer. The warning here is this. Don't dare bring your prayers and requests to God without first fixing the relational brokenness in your life. Fix what you have broken and own it. It's not her fault. It's not his fault. Own your junk. Own your stuff. And then go before the Lord and pray. Seeking His will. God doesn't want to hear your prayer if you cannot even honor and understand your closest neighbor. His word says, love your neighbor as yourself. Your spouse, love them. And then go to the Father with, with an unhindered heart, praying to Him. And so as we conclude this morning, I, I leave you with this. Repent and reconcile. Repent and reconcile within your marriage and then seek the Father.